Hello and welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. Available in video format at FunkinStuff.net and on YouTube, Truth and Rhythm can now also be enjoyed on the go as audio podcast edition from iTunes and other leading providers. I am your host, Scott Dr. GX Goldfine, musicologist and author of Everything is on the One, the first guy to funk. If you don't have your copy, you better get on over to Amazon and grab it. Makes a great holiday gift too. Uh, if you're you're watching or listening, either way, I thank you very much for your continued interest and support. And you're going to be rewarded once again today because my guest is none other than jazz funk percussionist Leonard Doc Gibbs, who for more than 40 years has added to the rhythm groove and soul of dozens of albums and hundreds of performances with several top line acts. Those artists include Grover Washington Jr., George Benson, Bob James, Earl Clude, Rodney Franklin, Breakwater, Pieces of a Dream, Kirk Whalum, George Howard, Erica Badu, and Anita Baker. In 1997, Gibbs began a 10-year run as a musical director for Emerald Live, the popular cooking show on cable TV's Food Network. He's also an elected member of the Board of Governors of the National Association of Recording Artists and Sciences, Philadelphia chapter. He's also performed drum workshops for children with young audiences of Eastern Pennsylvania and the Strings for Schools organizations. Gibbs released his solo album, Serving It Up Hot, in 2002. We'll get into all of that and catch up with his most recent activities. So with all that, and I think coming from L.A. today, we've got the good doctor in the house. How are you? All right. How you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Yeah, I got to say, you know, now there's two doctors in truth and rhythm today. We got me, Dr. GX, and we got <laughs> Doc Gibbs. Right. That's good, man. I like running in twos like that. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, funny enough, um, you know, I grew up, I was in high school when, uh, you know, the peak of Dr. J, Julius Irving. Right. And so he was like my favorite player. And although I was a Lakers fan, which I'm wearing right. a hat, um, my favorite uh, Eastern team was the Sixers. Wow. And so uh, I got the nickname Dr. G, which later turned into Dr. GX. Um, but it was, you know, influenced by that. So, wow. <laughs> you know, some relationship there, Italian. <laughs> nice, nice. Yeah, and it was a thrill, and I think it was uh, 83, I want to say. I got to go to uh, the NBA Finals at the Forum in Los Angeles, and it was Sixers and Lakers. I was in heaven. Wow. wow. <laughs> <laughs> so all good stuff. Yeah, man, good stuff. good stuff. So, you know, it's a thrill to me to have you on, uh, Doc, because, you know, back in 77, I mean, I wore out that Live at the Bijou album. I, wow. I don't know at the time it was pretty much your first major record, but right. I remember that sucker out. I love that album. Wow. Yeah, that was a real special time when we did that record because uh, we were touring with Grover already and it was just amazing. Little did we know at the time we were headlining shows and we, and we were playing music. There was no vocals. There was no singer out front. It was all live music and it's all musicians playing off of each other. And I think that was what brought people out and what brought people to buying Grover's music. 
and appreciating what was happening because it was all live and it was all guys playing off of each other. Mm. And you don't get that too much these days. Mm. Usually there's got to be somebody out front singing, you know, and the ones that just have musicians out front is usually, I call it beach funk music. You know, it's kind of like beach funk. <laughs> it doesn't have a whole lot of this going on, you know, a lot of heart. It's more so, background music. It's like background music almost, you know, I mean, it, it doesn't have any depth to it, you know, and I mean, I think all music has valid, is, is valid, but it's about how music affects you, mind, body, and spirit to me is, is what that's really important. And that's something we here in America are not, we seem to have lost that when we made music possible for young people, but not for older people, you know. Music nowadays is designed and created for young people who will go out and down, download and stream because nobody's making any money anymore off of record sales because there aren't any records. So, you know, I'm thankful that I grew up in an era when all of those things were still happening, when it still meant something when you went to a record store and listened to music before you brought it, you know, um, when you could see live musicians, you know. Yeah, I'm thankful as well. I mean, coming up in that time and being able to enjoy that work yeah. amongst so many others. Um, I want to talk to you much more about that that record and the experience you had with that. Um, but I want to talk about some things that preceded it first. Okay. Also, I want to share this with you too. I had this here. This is a. I saw a, wow. <laughs> a Grover. This was probably in the early '80s at the Walter Theater in Los Angeles. Right. And this shirt is from that. Um, it's when I was probably, you know, half the man I am now physically, but <laughs> wow, man, age wise. So yeah, crazy. I remember <laughs> that logo too, man. <laughs> there you go. So doc, let's go back quite a ways and talk about, um, I think you got into, um, the, uh, hand drum and, and that kind of thing uh, back in high school. Why don't you talk about that and how you progressed to the point where you hooked up with Grover Washington. Okay, so um, I, I was around 11 to 12 and I used to take drum lessons, snare drum lessons. And, um, you know, we would get together once a week with this instructor and, and he'd take us through some rudiments and stuff. And I got interested in, in drums and, and percussion from that. So, Got, going back to junior high school, I joined the band and the orchestra. We used, we used to have a marching band that went around the school. And uh, the music instructor said, you know, we have enough drummers, but we need somebody to play the triangle. I was like, man, the triangle. <laughs> so took a, a little bit of coaching from her to like, convinced me that the triangle is an important instrument because I'm not playing it throughout the whole piece. I'm playing it only in one section. And I have to stand up and hit the triangle and make sure I hit it so it doesn't start to spin. And say, I said, I said okay, I'll, I'll give it a shot. So I started rehearsing with the orchestra and I did the gig, you know, and my parents came and I was, 
I was feeling some kind of way that my mom and pop was going to come and see me playing a triangle. Everybody else is playing instruments. So anyway, I graduated and went to high school. And that's where the marching band was. And once again, they said, well, we have enough drummers. We need somebody to play the splash cymbals, you know, or to play the bass drum. So I kept getting put on these other instruments other than the drum set or the drum using sticks. So when I graduated from high school, I decided I would buy a conga drum because I couldn't afford a whole set of drums. And I just had this drum thing in me. I had to, I had to have some kind of drum. So it's good I didn't buy the drum set because I, I had polio when I was born. So I have no right foot for the bass drum. Mm -hmm. So hand drums was the way for me to go. So in Philly, we have a rich drum culture, hand drum culture. We have a gentlemen who have played, they were like some of the first hand drummers on the East Coast and um, eventually became hand drummers to perform with Olatunji back in the early 60s. So I started connecting up with some of these older gentlemen and started studying and learning how to play correctly, how to strike the drum, exercises, technique, and how to approach the drum. So uh, that type of thing began for, I, I started that around 68, something like that, 69, because I was also going to art school. I went to the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts, studying um, painting, sculpturing, uh, lithography, watercolors. But I was still doing the drum while I was doing that. So, of course, the drum won out. I stopped going to school and just emerged myself into studying. And New York used to have a very interesting drum and percussion shop. It was called uh, Pro Drum. And they sold all kind of percussion instruments and drums. So I would go there, I'd get a couple of bucks, I'd go there and I'd buy a percussion instrument and come home and listen to it being played traditionally and then figure out how can I use it commercially. So I might buy like a beer and bow that comes from Brazil. And so I bring it home and I put on a record, I look at the pictures on the, on the album cover and I'm constantly listening to the, to the record so I can figure out how to play it. And so eventually someone came to town from Brazil who played the beer and bow and they gave me some some technique. So that's how I learned how to play, was basically studying with people who played in the streets. I, I didn't have any formal training. When I came along, they, they really didn't have uh, ethnomusicology in universities. That came a little later. So if you wanted to learn how to play a hand drum and other percussion instruments, you had to study with somebody who came from that particular country. And so that's what I did. And eventually, um, once I thought I, I felt that I had it together, because I played with a lot of local bands in Philly. And at some point, I started to go to New York and sit in with different people. And that led to getting a, a partial gig with Freddie Hubbard. And he would he used me when he was playing on the East Coast. And then I hooked up with George Benson. And that was the same kind of thing. He would call me when he was close to Philly. I never really went on the road, but if he was playing in Baltimore or DC or Philly or New York, he would call me 
and one of those gigs we, we were playing Carnegie Hall and Grover was the guest artist. And of course I asked Grover, well, could I come and sit in with you when you're playing in Philly? And he said, yeah, come on. And so that's how I met Grover. And I sat in with him on a Tuesday and he said, listen, man, what are you doing Friday and Saturday? I like the way you play. I'd like for you to come back and um, I'll give you a couple of bucks. I said, great. So that was like in April. And he told me, well, if, if things get better, because I can't really afford a percussionist now, but if things get better, I'll, I'll call you. And so I figured, yeah, well, I, I've, I've heard that before. So I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. And at the time I was playing with Thad Jones, Mel Lewis, big band in New York. They used to do a thing at the uh, Village Vanguard on Mondays, and I would play with them. So I did two tracks on two different records for them. And in August, they were asking, they actually in July, that we were talking about going to Europe in September, and they wanted to know if I'd be interested in going. And at the same time, Grover called me and wanted to know if I'd like to go out for a weekend with him. And I looked at what the money was going to be, and I looked at the big band and realized there's about 17 people in the big band, which means I'd probably make $300 a week, you know. And I think with Grover, we were going out for a weekend, and I was going to make, you know, maybe seven or 800 bucks for the weekend. I said, nah, I better go with Grover, you know. And that's how we connected. And so uh, that was a good relationship that lasted until he passed away. So, so, so uh, Doc, uh, so that so was roughly When I got the gig with Grover, it was September of 75, right after Mr. Magic was out, and it, it blew up. Yeah. And so that's when we started going on the road. We started touring. And, of course, he was the headliner, because back then, whoever sold the most records, whoever was bringing in the crowd was the headliner. So... Uh, we went all around the country playing Mr. Magic. Yeah, so in your predecessor, though, was was it Ralph McDonald that played on, on those? Ralph McDonald played on all the records. See, back then, uh, you had studio musicians and you had live musicians. And very rarely did the studio musicians go out because they're making more money working in the studio and being home. Whereas the live musician, he doesn't, he's not afforded the opportunity in the studio as much, so he's willing to go out on the road. And uh, the live musician is the one who really promotes the record and, and creates the sales for the record. The, uh, the studio guy, he makes the record and hopefully it'll do well, but it's the live guys that go out to really push it over the top to make it sell. So Ralph was the studio guy. He did all of Grover's um, studio work. Uh, until we did live at the Bijou, and that's when Grover used the band, you know, which was a great opportunity too, you know. So when you're doing the live uh, versions, um, are you trying to replicate what was on record, or are you trying to make it your own? How do you balance that? Well, you know, I'm 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 replicating a little bit of what Ralph is doing, but I'm also trying to interject what I would be doing, you know, because. Um, I heard things just a little differently than Ralph did because I mean, we're individuals, you know, but I mean, I definitely, Ralph was like the, he was my mentor. Cause um, when I finally met him through Grover, he just invited me up to his studio. He had a studio in Midtown and 
um, there was a special knock that you had to have to get in. And I knew the knock. So, man, I would go and hang out in New York two, three times a week going to his studio, you know. And it, the train might have been like, at the time, maybe 20 bucks round trip. So it wasn't a big deal to run to New York and hang out for the day and watch these cats in the studio record. And then sometimes Ralph would take me to sessions with him. And so I would just watch him and his approach to recording. And during that time, you had limited tracks. So I, I would see Ralph maybe put three or four different things down on one track, you know. And it was just oh, a thrill. Yeah, just amazing watching yeah. him do that, you know. So I was I was lucky in that I was listening to him on record and, and replicating to an extent what he was doing, but also I'm with him and he's letting me see how he approaches doing certain things, how he approaches working in the studio. So that helped me immensely when I had an opportunity to go and record in the studio because um, once I had the gig with Grover, it opened up opportunities for me to record in the studio with other people. And I sort of knocked down that barrier in terms of uh, studio musician and live musician. Now everybody's pretty much the same, you know. If you play on the record, you go on the road because it's not that much studio work anymore. So Doc, talk to me about what sort of makes uh, a percussionist go from good to, to great. You know, what are the kind of qualities or, or techniques or talent that you need to have to really, you know, fly in that in that uh, area? Well, first you got to have big ears. And you got to be able to hear everything in the music. And then you got to have ears to figure out what would I put in it to make it better. If there's nothing I can put in there, maybe there's nothing goes there. But Ralph used to tell me, every song doesn't call for congas or bongo. Sometimes a song might call for a shaker or just a wood block. So you had, as the percussionist, you had to know what you think is gonna work in that particular tune. So not only do you have to have big ears, but you gotta have a big heart. Your spirit's got to be able to mold into what is required to make the song better. What spices can a percussionist add to make it better? If you can't make it better, then don't do anything. But you should have an arsenal of stuff that will fit. Something will fit out of the arsenal of instruments that you got. Something that you have should fit. And so I think that's where you go from being just a regular player to like somebody that's more in tune with what's happening. Everybody's not destined for that, that, that uh, level because sometimes you got to, well, a lot of times you got to put your ego on the side and you can't think, well, I'm going to, I'm just going to, I'm going to show off on this tune. I'm going to play everything I got, but the tune might not require that. It might just require a kibasa sound, you know? And other thing that percussionists got to keep in mind, it's, it, it's not your name on the record. Somebody else's name is on the record, you know? So you got to just bring your part, your piece of the pie. And everybody's bringing a piece so that we can make a, a nice whole pie that tastes good. 
Are, are you typically looking to blend most with the drums and the bass or with other instruments as well? I'm listening to that. I'm listening to everybody and I'm really focusing on what the bass and the bass drummer are doing, how they're locked. So that's going to help me. But if I'm, if I'm uh, recording for vocalists, I'm listening to the way they're phrasing and how they approach the song. And that kind of dictates to me what I need to do. I, I always felt that um, when I would approach a song to record for someone, I gotta approach it with an open mind. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta release my ego and just bring in that energy that's gonna say, okay, let me listen to this thing. I, I think we need this or we need that. And try it. If it works good, if not, well, I got, I got a few other things. Same thing with the rhythm. If I play a, a conga pattern on a track. I got about three or four other patterns that I can do. So if you're not happy with this one, I got another one. You don't like that one, I got another one. Now, if, you, if we get about the five or six, I don't have no more. We're gonna start all over again. <laughs> yeah. Well, what is it about uh, the city of brotherly love that seems to have you know brought forth so many great percussionists? I mean, I had James and Toomey on the show not too long ago. And, uh, you know, so many guys from that area. What is it? It's the water. Yeah. <laughs> it's the Schuylkill punch that we drink. <laughs> no, I, I think, man, because uh, one big reason is that Philly is like a suburb to New York. And a lot of musicians grow up in Philly with the intentions of connecting in new york because once you get to new york now you're on the big stage you know and then a lot of musicians that are already on the big stage would come to new york come to philly just to kind of cool out to get away from that that big scene that's happening in new york so i think that kind of back and forth and then so many musicians just growing up in philly and being influenced by the music because we used to have a lot of good clubs there and and I mean, you could see everybody in those clubs, you know, from Coltrane to, uh, you know, Cannonball Adderley to Miles, you know, I mean, I, I saw Miles in a club, you know. So, you know, it's a difference when you, you know, when, when he's only like 20 feet away, you know, and you're feeling the energy coming off the stage from the other musicians playing together. I think all that helps to, to create musicians. You know, um, every town in America doesn't have that kind of jazz clubs, you know. And so, you know, places like Kansas City, uh, Chicago, you know, Los Angeles, San Francisco, you know, New York, of course, Boston. Those are maybe the cities where you'll find musicians. Not a lot, but you'll find them. Everybody migrates to New York, but, but there's a lot of guys that grow up in New York that are from New York that are musicians. So I think, you know, and then it's that East Coast thing, you know, it snows over there and it gets cold and that makes you want to move fast and, you know, get warm, you know. So good way to get warm is to start playing. <laughs> well, and for Philly, I mean, it's not just jazz, but of course, the whole sound of Philly and the soul thing. Yeah, uh, I think I think a lot of that also informed you know uh, Grover's approach and how he plays and bringing 
that soul to the jazz thing. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, you know, I mean, we're, we're, we're influenced by all the music that's happening there, you know, uh, because it's, it's so wide and varied, you know. And then you can always cross over boundaries. I mean, I, you know, I hate when they put like uh, names on the music. Should be, is it good music or is it bad music? You know, <laughs> that's what Duke Ellington said. They were two kinds of music, mm -hmm. either good or bad. Now, all them names they put on it, that's something else, you know. And I think if we're listening and, and being inspired by good music, then there's no room for bad music, you know. What's bad music anyway? <laughs> so Something to, you know, to the ear. So I want to. I want to always play music that that people can appreciate, and no matter what level you're on, you can grab onto that music, and it'll take you on a journey. I think that's when we're doing it. Musicians. That's when we're doing our job. We're able to take you on a journey. We're able to take you away from the everyday problems, the bills, the headaches, to this and that. And for that, for that hour or two that you're sitting listening to music, all that stuff is gone. It's yeah. just what's happening right now with us and the music and how we're connecting, you know. Yeah, living yeah, in the moment being sort of transformed. Yeah. So, so here's, here's. Wow. <laughs> I had the vinyl too, I don't anymore, but. Um, I probably wore out the grooves, but I mean, what a record. I just want to talk about some of these cuts that were on here because it was so funky, too. It was on right. the cusp and um, Lock It in the Pocket and, of course, Mr. Magic. Right. Uh, but also Funk Foot was amazing. And uh, Sausalito is just a great kind of group. Right, thing. right, right. Um, tell me about what it was like, you know, being part of that when it happened and then being part of it when it became a hit, a hit record. Well, uh, <laughs> you know, it was mind blowing because I mean, like, uh, just a few years before that, I'm I was listening to Grover on records, you know, because I was a fan, you know. So um, to finally get to that level where I'm I'm playing with somebody that's that I've been listening to and it's got a name. That was mind blowing in itself. And then I had never toured before. So preparing for how to tour. And at that time, um, Grover was flying all of the equipment. It was amazing. They would drive a truck down with all of these anvil cases with our instruments and they drive it down to the airport. That's before they had security so tough. And they would, and 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 the sky cat would say, "Okay, bring the truck to the back of the airport, and we're loading the shit on the plane, and uh, you know, give giving maybe a hundred, hundred fifty bucks, all the stuff on the plane, no problem. Can't do that no more, you know. So the experience of that, and then eventually getting to the point where the instruments had to be rented, you know, unless we were going out on a tour." Tour might be six weeks. Now we can have a truck to carry all the equipment. So all of those things were a new experience. How to deal with um, being on the road? Because a lot of musicians are great guys when they're in town, but when soon as they soon as they leave town, they become somebody else. 
you know, and you got to be able to be on time. You got to be able to get along with people. And being with Grover, we sort of learned all of those things. We learned the importance of thinking about the set, how we're going to put, what are the order of tunes that we're going to play? Um, making sure that you don't have two ballots together. Making sure that we take the people up, up in front till we get to the end of the show and people are just crazy. And then what we'll say when we do the encore, we're doing a short encore. We're not going out there and play like crazy again. We're doing a short encore and we're leaving the stage and we're going to leave the people wanting us back like yesterday. And that's what we did. So those are the kinds of things that I learned with Grover. Being in Grover's band was like, uh, you know, going for my masters, you know. And the other unique thing about Grover is that he asked us to write songs for his record. You don't ever, ever rarely hear an artist ask the musicians in the band to write songs, not together, just write whatever. You, if you want to get with somebody and write something great, if you three or four guys want to, or you want to write individually, whatever, just submit a song. And so, man, I mean, just that kind of experience and um, to me, that that all goes along with the the whole experience of the music back then, you know, and the kind of things that young people today have no clue, you know. And the other unfortunate thing is the young people don't want to get with older people like myself to find this information out. I I, I should be traveling around the universities that have music programs and 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 talking about what it was like and my experience and the approach to the music, you know, because. Most of the instructors in the, in the universities, they, they never toured, you know, they, they never really been on the road. They don't know what it's like to be on tour and have a tour in and you stand at a, a motel six and the manager comes and says, well, everybody's going home. The tour is over. We're, we're not going any further. Wow. OK. You're going to make sure my equipment gets home, right? You know, that kind of thing. So just that experience, you know. Yeah, people don't get that. No, you know. well, trying to help spread the word through truth and rhythm. Well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you're you you're doing these kind of interviews, because if things don't change, people will have to look back to your interviews to see what it was like when when people like myself was coming along. You know, because each one of us has a different experience. You know. Each one of us has a different story to tell. And so it's great that you're capturing our stories while we're still alive. <laughs> yeah, there's been far too many uh, dropping the past few years. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so with, with Grover, I think a lot of people don't realize how many instruments he played also. I mean, he wasn't just on the tenor sax. He played all the saxophones. He played flute. I think he did right. a keyboard. I mean, he was so musical. Right, right, right. Grover was like uh, an old school musician, but, but but young, a younger guy, you know, because um, uh, when Grover first came along, he was he, he, he was coming out of the CTI school. So, you know, um, a lot of great players were, were on that label. And and Grover had uh, he, he was privy to the to the uh, masters back then, you know, so he had that kind of. He was a young guy, but he had he, he was connected with the old the old way that things were done, you know. 
And uh, so, man, what an experience. And the, and the, the whole band was so hot. Um, I think they call them locksmith, right? Right, 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 right. Right. So the whole band, I mean, the guitar, the keyboards, it was hot. Um, and and wasn't there uh, going to be a locksmith album or was there a locksmith album? Well, we did. We did. We did a locksmith album. It was called Unlock the Funk and it was on Arista. And um, it did pretty well in London. It didn't get any airplay. It didn't get much. Wasn't much put behind it um, at the time. Arista was having great success with Whitney Houston and other great big bands. And so I think the groups in Philadelphia became like a, a write-off for Arista because they didn't put any, they put money behind the bands in terms of recording, but they didn't put any money behind touring or tour support or advertising or none of that stuff. Um, so the, 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 there were like four or five bands. One band was called uh, Breakwater. Another band was called Spaces. Another call. Another band was called Baby Grand. And so, and Locksmith. So all of us were on Arista, and nobody knew about none of us. <laughs> so you know, when the when the record started doing good in London, we didn't have money to afford to send a couple guys and try to talk about it and drum up more sales and eventually maybe do a little touring over there we just didn't we didn't have management and arista was not really trying to be too friendly with how to how to move this thing along you know so we did a second album but it never came it was never released and then they dropped us which is what they did with all the other bands that they had you know yeah. that was the music business back then <laughs> yeah that sounds the late 70s right yep yeah, yeah, because Eris to them was like, seemed like being in a signing frenzy almost. They signed so many acts, yeah. and, and they, yeah. they, didn't, they didn't support them, like you said. Right. Yeah, uh, that's a shame. But, that was the uh, tax write-off game. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, you had your payola game, you had the tax write-off game, you know. See, um, the music business back then was, was cutthroat in a different way. We got a different kind of cutthroat business now, you know. <laughs> so I'm thankful that I've been able to survive through through the trenches and the times. Well, let's talk, uh, Doc, about the other uh, Grover albums that you did in the studio. So I think you were on the Reed Seed and Paradise. Um, Reed Seed had the hit Do That, uh, right. another great track. Santa Cruzin was another real, uh, cool kind of Sausalito-type track. Right. And then a real nice version of uh, Just The Way You Are. Right. Yeah. So, what do you remember about actually going to the studio and doing a, a studio record with Grover? Well, uh, I think the first one we did was uh, uh, Reed Seed, and that was that was at a studio in Philly. It was right across the street from a graveyard, <laughs> so we call it Graveyard Sound. <laughs> but it was it was cool, man. Just going in the studio, recording, you know, and and having the freedom. Because uh, I think Grover was still under contract with CTI or something like that. And, and they took us in the studio. We went into Rudy Van Gelder's studio and Creed Taylor was there. And we recorded some tracks and nothing else was said about the tracks or about the band or anything. It was kind of like a, it was kind of like a, this is the way we're going to deal with Grover's band. 
And so the record that came out from that adventure was called A Secret Place. And it was really a secret place because nobody told the band <laughs> that we weren't going to be on the record, you know. So they used Ralph and Eric Gale and the Studio Cats, you know. So when we got a chance to record Reed Seed and the freedom of not having uh, a Creed Taylor type producer over you and really, you know, Creed didn't have a good energy, didn't have a good vibe to me. You know, I, 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 I vibe off of your spirit, your energy, you know. And usually the first time we meet is going to be like my impression of you and whether or not I feel like I can, I'm going to be able to get along with you. And Creed had a very different kind of uh, vibe. And so he didn't connect with none of the, none of the band. Plus, we, we're, a, we're a group of guys that have been hanging out on the road and playing and touring together. So we had our own little craziness camaraderie and we were young you know so playing reed seed and not having somebody say well can you send what would ralph do you know um can you play more like ralph not having that and just being able just play you man that was that was that was a great opportunity and then writing music for grover you know and some of the songs that we would do we would do that we would write were reflective of places that we would we had gone and, and the vibe that we had gotten there, like Sausalito or Santa Cruz or Maracas Bay, you know. So, man, what a great opportunity! Just having that kind of vibe and you know being the camaraderie, you know. And I, I see All, that you have uh, several writing credits on there, and Grover yeah. has the production credit. Right. Yeah. 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 So man, you don't hear no, you know, man, when's the last time you heard an artist ask his band to, to contribute some songs for the record? Most of the time, the artist is trying to get publishing, writers and everything else, because there's more money in his pocket, you know? So uh, Grover was special. Grover was real special. And, um, you know, people could learn from the way he carried himself, how you supposed to roll in this business. You know, he didn't take any stuff. He wouldn't let anybody get over on him, you know. And at the same time, he was humble, you know. I used to I used to play with Bob James and he used to always he used to always say, stay humble, you know. And that's important, you know, because as soon as you use lose that humbleness, then the then the ego starts to slip. And the next thing you know, you got a big head that won't even fit through the door. You know, <laughs> so man, I like the vibe on people. I like the energy of people and what they can bring to the table. And what you bring to the table is important. It don't have to be a lot, but you got to bring something to the table. If not, get back up on the porch and let the big dogs run. <laughs> well, what I really liked about uh, Grover also is that you know, the balance, um, you know, his stuff, I like to say was, you know, excellent for, for getting down the dance floor, getting down in the bedroom or getting on down the highway and cruising, you know, it was just, and it was, and it was in the pocket and it was right on point for all of those different types of, of yeah. vibes. Yeah. 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 That's what music's supposed to do. Cause you named a variety of different things that the music does for you, you know, 
And that's what music's supposed to do. You're not supposed to be stagnant. If the music doesn't go anywhere, it doesn't have any message or we're not moving, man, I don't need it. I like music that makes me happy, man, or creates a mood, you know, melancholy or, you know, ready to get busy and work, man, you know, just chill, you know, music can take you there, you know, all good stuff. So were you doing a, a lot of touring behind that record with, with Grover or? Uh, oh yeah, we toured a lot. Um, Grover didn't like flying too much. So um, we were probably one of the first jazz bands to start touring using the tour bus. And that's where, you, you know, you have bunks on the bus and you know, usually leave after the show and drive all night and get to the next city, maybe seven or eight in the morning. And, Get your room about 8.30 and you go and get about four hours sleep and you get up, your little lunch and then sound check and then dinner and then the gig and then maybe back on the bus again, another eight hours to the next city. So we toured, you know, and once again, I, I got my feet wet on how to tour and the, the correct way to tour because if you don't know what's going on and you get out there thinking the way you, you move around at home, you're going to get in trouble because it's a different thing. I'll, I'll tell you two quick stories. One, real, real quick, the best thing you can do when you check into a hotel, because at the time, most hotels had matchbooks. We would always take a matchbook and put it in the pocket before you leave out because you don't know where you're going, where you're going to end up. And if you're in another city and it's a different language or whatever, you don't know what hotel you've been in because you've been in and out of hotels the last three or four weeks. What hotel am I? What's the name of my hotel? Oh, I got the matchbook. There's there. Now we can get back to the hotel. I learned that one from Al Jarreau. <laughs> he said he went out and hanging out one night and got in the cab and after the like maybe eight or nine in the morning, after hanging out all night and partying, and what's my hotel? He said he got in the cab and the guy said, where, where are you headed? And he's like, oh man, what's my hotel? That's right, I got a matchbook. Boom, we got to the hotel. The other, the other story, I was with Grover. We were on a tour bus and we were traveling overnight. And so we stopped about maybe seven in the morning and the bus driver and the road manager got off the bus so I got off the bus because I was still I was awake and I saw them sitting at the counter. So I figured oh, they're gonna get something to eat. So I went into the bathroom and when I came out, they were gone. And the bus was gone. I was like, oh no. Luckily, I knew we were going to Atlanta and I had the hotel name. I had my itinerary. So now I had to think fast. What am I gonna do? So I started asking truck drivers, who's headed to Atlanta? So I found a guy and he said, all right, I'll take you in. I'm going, I'm going most of the way in. So now we're on the bus. I mean, we're in the truck and I'm trying to reach the bus via the CB because we didn't have cell phones back then. <laughs> so the only way to communicate was, you know, citizen band radio. Good buddy. Yeah. Breaker, breaker one nine. Good buddy. You know. <laughs> 
Hey, where's that stagecoach? I'm asking, where you at? Nothing. So I was like, man. All right, so we get down the road, and we're about maybe 10 miles outside of Atlanta, and the guy says, I got I to gotta wait at this truck stop. So he pulls in, it's like hundreds of trucks. So now I got to ask another truck driver who's going into the city. So I got a guy, he's going through the city. So he lets me off on the side of the road. I run down the embankment. Now I'm in Atlanta. And I got my itinerary, so I know the address to the hotel. So I get to the hotel, and they're just unloading the bus. <laughs> and they see me, and they thought, man, where, where were you hiding, man? I said, hiding? Y'all left me. <laughs> they thought I was hiding out on the bus somewhere because we used to joke around like that. So they man, I know Doc's hiding somewhere. <laughs> I was like, man, let me tell you what adventure I just had. <laughs> so, you know, those are two of my many stories of uh, being on the road, you know. <laughs> and it's the little things because just think if you don't know where the hotel is, now what? Now what? And you don't have no cell phone. What are you going to do? Yeah, yeah. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. It's funny. Yeah, good stuff. Do, do you tell tell me? Do you recall uh, any any gigs in particular that stand out yeah, just because, because something about them was extra special in the the way the audience was that night, or um, something you played that you didn't usually play, or maybe uh, the power went out somewhere, or anything like that. Uh, well, you know, with Grover, the thing was that once we played the head of the song, it was like fasten your seatbelts because he's taking us, he's taking us on a journey with his solo. So each night was different in that respect because, um, uh, you know, it's not going to be like the previous night. And it's not going to be like tomorrow. It's going to be like tonight, right now. So that energy and vibe was very strong and prevalent for us. The show, what sticks out for me, um, we did a show at home at the Academy of Music. And that was a really big show because all of our peers and all of our musician friends and family could come out and see us. And all before that, they, they had been hearing about us on the road and what we were doing. So that was, that was, that sticks out. And another one was when a few times we played for the uh, NBA All-Stars um, banquet dinner. And so getting an opportunity to meet a lot of the NBA players because see Grover used to play the national anthem in Philly. So he knew all the ball players and he liked to shoot hoops too. So he knew all the ball players, you know? And so when we would go to a certain city, if they had off, they would come to the show. So it was always great, man. I, I met so many great ball players, you know, cats from back in the day, George Gervin, Moses Malone, Andrew Tony, a lot of the Sixers, a lot of the Lakers, man, those were good days. Yeah. That was a good time because I mean, you know, I'm meeting people that I've been seeing playing ball or meeting people that I've been 
experiencing their music and now I'm actually talking to them and able to tell them, man, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a serious fan. I remember your first record or first record I brought that you, 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 you recorded, you know? So it was different, man. It was a different time. I keep saying that. <laughs> we're, we're reliving it vicariously here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, actually Grover later did a song that was a tribute to Dr. J. I think it was called let it flow. Yeah. Um, so yeah, hoops was, was big with Grover. So you, you did uh, paradise in 1979, uh, another studio record, uh, again, produced by Grover. Uh, is there anything uh, in particular that, um, stands out about that record? Because after that you would go on to do some other stuff. Um, paradise, uh, you know, I think we were kind of like on almost pretty much on our way out by then in terms of, cause I don't think we did any more records with Rover. And um, Locksmith had gotten a, a deal with uh, Arista and we, we were trying to branch out and develop our own thing, you know? So Paradise don't, didn't, doesn't really stick in my mind a lot, you know? It was just something that we did and kind of got through it. I eventually coming back, came back and, and recorded a lot of um, stuff that Grover was producing because he was producing um, uh, Pieces of a Dream and uh, Gene Karn and some of his, old, his own records. And so I, I, I continued to record with Grover uh, up into the 90s. I think the last record I did with him was uh, Strawberry Moon. Yeah, I have that one here from uh, 87. Right. Yeah. Right. That might have been the last one. I don't know what, you know, uh, all, all, of, all of that was experiences that were just fantastic, you know. 